I'm not trying to offend you, so if this is your background, I'm just trying to give you some information that's there for you to look at and see kind of where you're, perhaps you came from in terms of your walk with Jesus and where we are today. But notice how Martin Luther talks about baptism. And what he says about it, first of all, is the second part of baptism is the sign or sacrament, which is that immersion into water from this, where it also derives its name. Now, the first part of baptism, Luther said, was water and God's word. Combining the cleansing of God's word and the water, it was an act of God that brought salvation to you. The second part is that it's always immersion in the New Testament. That that's what the word itself means. For the Greek, baptizo, means I immerse, and baptisma means immersion. So Luther, as a reformer, has made this statement here about what it means to be dunked in the name of Jesus Christ. Now here's his preference. What he says in a commentary of this, for this reason, I would have candidates for baptism completely immersed in the water as the word says and the sacrament signifies. So here's Luther who says that he prefers what? That everyone practice the New Testament. <laughs> that's what he's saying. That that's what should be done. His main concern was that the Catholic Church at that time had so corrupted the Word of God that people didn't know why they were baptized anymore. That they'd been baptized as babies, they saw it as a sacrament, they saw need, no need for repentance, saw no need for uh, any confirmation or any uh, declaration, publicly declaration of faith anymore. So he's concerned about that, so he says, look, for this reason, I think every person should be immersed. I'm using the word dunked, all right, dunked in water. Uh, as the word says, and as the sacrament, that is, the act itself signifies. That's the symbol of it. Are you with me? Now, notice the next point. Here's what he says. Not that I deem this necessary, but it would be well to give it so perfect and complete a thing, a perfect and complete sign. Thus, it was also doubtless instituted by whom? Christ. Now, are you with me for just a moment? Here's Luther saying that the New Testament teaches dunking in water in the name of Jesus Christ. He gives a beautiful explanation for it, and then he says, but I don't think it's necessary. How does he get to make that decision? I'm just asking. Particularly when he also, in the very next sentence, says, who instituted it? Christ himself. Christ himself. Very interesting, so when you see that. Now, as you begin to look at this, and I'm going to say something more in just a moment, Martin Luther is living in a time where it's about to become a crime to baptize an adult, the point where you can lose your life. So infant baptism, sprinkling uh, at, at the age of a baby or uh, as a baby is the predominant viewpoint. And so all the ones we've talked about, the scholars from Catholic, Protestants, Reformers, are all dealing with the subject, and they're saying, and they admit, that the New Testament teaches dunking in the name of Jesus Christ is the way they did the New Testament. But what they do is they go back and they justify baptizing babies, sprinkling babies, by saying it's like a preordained marriage. That in their time, people were preordained to marry somebody else. In other words, it was a prearranged marriage, if you will. That my baby girl born is going to marry your baby son when they get to the right age. 
So that's a prearranged marriage, and that happened many times, particularly in the kingly court back then. So at, at birth, there's this ceremony they go through that they now know, as they grow up, that they, it's been a prearranged marriage, that they're going to get married 12, 13, 14 years old. Are you with me? They still have to make that decision, but the decision has been made for them in their life to lead them towards the arrangement of marriage with that other individual. So what the scholars were saying back then, and even today, is that that's what infant baptism is. You baptize your baby, because they've been born in sin, which the New Testament does not teach. You baptize your baby as a prearranged marriage, a prearranged commitment, so that one day, when they go through confirmation class or catechism, that they on their own can make that decision that you made for them when they were a child, all right? So here's what Luther says about that, and here's the way he explained it. He goes to the verse in Mark 16, verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And what he says is that belief and baptism are necessary for salvation. But they don't have to follow that order. You can be baptized and you're obeying Jesus, and you can believe later and you're obeying Jesus. See how he takes that? So it now becomes you baptize your baby, and later on they'll have belief. And so there they have fulfilled what Jesus wanted them to do, to be baptized and believe. Are you with me? And that, that's the thought behind it. In other words, it doesn't matter the order. So you baptize an infant, and then they will grow, as Luther says, into their belief. They will grow into that faith. There's only one problem with that. That's found nowhere in the New Testament. That's found nowhere in the, in the sayings of Jesus. Luther took the verse the way Jesus intended it, turned it around. Are, are you with me? I'm not offending, I'm just stating the facts. Whoever believes and is baptized, the Bible says repent and be baptized, and you'll be saved. There is an order that Jesus gives, a very important order as, as we look at as well. So from the original meaning of the word, from history, from architecture, from the various scholars, you can find all sorts of evidence that dunking, immersion, in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins, is the New Testament pattern that's to be continued that Jesus commanded from day one. But I have another important thing we need to look at. It's called the Word of God. I mean, that's the important thing here, the Word of God. And the question we have to decide is what Paul said. Paul said, i got to make the decision whether I'm going to please man or please God. Am I seeking the approval of men or seeking the approval of God? And in our own hearts, we have to make the decision honestly searching Am I going to listen to the word of God and not just what David says? Don't, don't take it because I'm saying it. Or because Luther, and I'm not comparing myself to Luther. I'm just saying Luther, Calvin, anybody else. Whatever man says, if it doesn't line up with scripture, then man is wrong. Humans are wrong. And I cannot preach to you a different gospel, no matter if it's been that way for 1,500 years or longer. And so here's what I see 
that Jude says in Jude 3. He says, notice, I want to encourage you to fight hard for the faith that God gave his holy people. God gave this faith once, and it's good for all time. See that? Why are we changing it? What's the, what's the need to change what God sent his son to die for that was absolute truth? And so when I find things in my own faith, in my own study, that are contrary to what God's word says, then I need to contend and fight hard to get back to the truth. Are you with me? And that, that's what I want to do. On top of that, Jesus commanded it, didn't he? Here's Jesus, make disciples of all nations. A baby cannot be a disciple. A disciple is a learner, a grower, someone who's mentored, someone who follows the example, the model of that's there, dunking them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's what a disciple is. And Jesus says, I've commanded you to do that everywhere you go, to dunk in my name for the forgiveness of sins. Now notice in Acts, Acts gives this pattern. In Acts, Jesus says, I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaritans, the Gentiles. In other words, I want you to cover the whole world. And here's what I want you to do. Preach the gospel. So they preach it to the Jews. And Peter says, repent and be baptized. And they repent. And they are dunked in the name of Jesus Christ, forgiveness of their sins, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They go to Samaria, to the Samaritans who were hated by the Jews. And the Samaritans there hear the word of God. They receive the message from Philip. And they are dunked in the name of Jesus. They're baptized in the name of Jesus. They then go to the Gentiles. Peter sent to the Gentile, Cornelius. And Cornelius, the Holy Spirit falls upon him. They're speaking in tongues. The Spirit is there. And Peter says, what can prevent us from dunking these people in water? And he orders that they be baptized. And they're baptized. Individual, every single example in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, without exception, is always dunking It's always in the name of Jesus Christ. The Ethiopian, the man from Ethiopia, baptized. Saul of Tarsus, baptized. Cornelius, Gentile, baptized. Lydia of Thyatira, baptized. The jailer from Philippi, baptized. The men from Ephesus, who had already been baptized in the name of John, now hear what Paul says, and they're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So wherever you go, they're following the command that Jesus had given them. Wherever you go, you have the same gospel, the same good news, the same message, and the same way that you come to me, and that is to be baptized in my name. Every single example. Now some people say, well, what about those unusual conversion stories? If you have this unusual experience with God, for example, the Ethiopian. Philip is on his way, and an angel takes him and delivers him to a spot in the desert where the Ethiopian is traveling. You would call that an unusual encounter, wouldn't you? An angel takes Philip and takes him to the chariot. Ethiopian's reading, doesn't understand what he's reading. Philip asks him about it, and he says, I need for somebody to tell me. And it says that Philip preaches him the message about Jesus and they come upon a body of water, and the Ethiopian says, what's keeping me from being baptized? And Philip and the eunuch both went down to the water, Philip dunked him, and the angel then transports Philip away again. Would you call that an unusual experience? And yet, even with that unusual spiritual encounter, what does the Ethiopian require to do? 
Same thing as you and me who have never had that encounter. I think about the Saul of Tarsus. You know Saul of Tarsus? He's on his way to murder and put in jail Christians because he doesn't believe in Jesus. A light from heaven comes down from Jesus to blind him. And for three days, he's sitting there in Damascus, blinded, having to come to his senses, and finally, God sends Ananias to him, and Ananias preaches to him the message of Jesus Christ, and then tells Paul, what are you waiting for? Arise, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So what does Saul do? He's dunked in the name of Jesus Christ, even though he'd had that spiritual encounter with the light that had blinded him. I think about the Philippian jailer. You talk about an experience. What happens with the Philippian jailer in Philippi? It's a crisis, isn't it? An earthquake hits. Jail doors are opened up. Jailer believes that all the, the prisoners have run away. He's been hearing Paul and Silas singing praises to God all through the night after the backs have been laid open with a whip. He's about to commit suicide because he's responsible for their lives and Paul and Silas stop him. The Philippian jailer brings them home Here's the message about believing in the name of Jesus Christ, and he is baptized, dunked in the name of Jesus Christ. So those unusual experiences, whether it was a, 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 the Holy Spirit falling upon someone like Cornelius or the Ethiopian and angels leading to them or this Philippian jailer, whatever it might be, you have many, many examples, don't you, where the pattern is always the same. Why should we change it today? It should not be changed from that standpoint. And so we look at this, you see all the things that so far we've learned from this series. We're to be dunked in water in the name of Jesus Christ. We must do it with faith and repentance. When we do that, our sins are washed away. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We are now entering into eternal life. It's an allegiance that we make, a loyalty, a commitment that we're going to follow and count the cost and follow after Jesus and turn from this world and follow after him. And today I want to talk to you about the covenant, the loving relationship that we have with God. There's a great book out on this. I hope it's still in print. It's by F. Lagarde Smith, Baptism, the Believer's Wedding Ceremony. Read it many, many years ago. It's, it's a really good book about this idea of com, uh, comparing baptism to the wedding ceremony, this covenant relationship. Might be one that you might want to read sometime. Let's think about the covenant that we make with Christ. I dated Sharon. She finally let me date her. <laughs> We went on a couple of dates, and she had the comment that she thought I was a nice guy, but it's not going anywhere. I thought that at the first date, but second, third date, I was pretty well hooked, all right? She wasn't. But we started, we dated for about a year or so, then started dating exclusively for another year. And then in that summer, following that, I uh, proposed to her, asked her to marry me, and she said yes. <laughs> And then six months later, six months later, we were, we were married. We were married. I think about that relationship. Our love grew. Our commitment to each other grew. Our faithfulness to each other grew. Our commitment to each other grew. We made decisions together, first of all, not to date anybody else. A decisions then whether or not we want to spend the rest of our life together. Then I made the proposal, will you marry me? And she said yes. And then from that we had our wedding ceremony where we became husband and wife. Now my love for her and my belief that she was the right one did not change 
because I simply asked her to marry me. I already believed that and loved her before I even asked her to marry me. I already had that faith that marriage is going to work, and my love for her was already there prior to even being married to her or asking her to marry me. But it's what led me to wanting to ask her to be engaged to me in order to get married. And as I look at that, I think about we were only dating and only engaged, but we weren't married until it was legalized in a wedding certificate symbolized by wedding rings. So we could have said at that point, well, we love each other, we're faithful to each other, we're loyal to each other, we're aligned with each other, uh, we believe in each other, we entrust in each other, but are you married? And the answer was no. Not yet. There's not been that commitment yet. The metaphor that's used often in the New Testament is this picture of marriage, Christ and the church. One of the great pictures of the relationship that Christ has with us, and he compares it to a marriage, the marriage vows, the marriage ceremony, that we are the bride of Christ, that at some point in my belief and love and trust in Jesus, I have to say yes to him. I have to answer his proposal, will you be in a covenant relationship with me? And at some point I have to say yes. And so you have in the book of Ephesians this comparison of husband and wives, the marriage, to Christ and the church. And he's speaking here about Christ and the church primarily. That's what he's going to tell you. Husband, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. He continues and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Notice the next part. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Talking about Christ and the church. When you hear those words, first of all, does it just, isn't marriage described in a very beautiful way? Marriage is depicted here in such a loving way of trust and commitment of sacrifice, of submission, of surrender. It's a sacred, it's ordained by God between a man and a woman. It's such a beautiful picture, isn't it, of a husband and wife coming together. It's also a reminder uh, for us today that marriage is only between a man and a woman. That same gender marriages have never been ordained by God and never will. And even though our government and individual states and the courts are at a rapid pace trying to legalize that, it's not ordained by God. It's not from God. I don't, I'm not surprised when the world does that, when they change the rules. But I'm always saddened and disheartened when the church changes the New Testament and changes the rules. A person was asking me about this, oh, sometime back, and about this whole thing, and I said, I can't change the manual. 
I can't add amendments to it. I just preach the word of God. I can't add to it. I can't subtract to it. I have to answer to God. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I believe. It's what the word of God says. And it gives a beautiful picture here of marriage between a man and a woman and how God ordained it. Well, don't let me get off the subject here. <laughs> let me get back to the subject of baptism. Now, the question I'm going to ask you is this. At what point am I committed to Jesus when he looks upon me as the bride or when I've said yes to him? Is it when I just believe in him? If I just believe in the name of Jesus Christ, therefore I'm now, I have said yes to him? Uh, didn't the demons believe? I'm just asking. Don't the demons believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Are they the church? Hope not. <laughs> Sometimes we act like it, but it's a different story. So it's more than belief. Abraham had faith, didn't he? His faith was credited to him as righteousness, but yet his faith led him to also be what? He had to be circumcised. He had a faith in God, a faith that was credited towards righteousness, but he was not saying yes to God until what? Circumcision. Now, what about repentance? What about my change in my life? I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn from my sins. I'm going to say the sinner's prayer. I'm just going to change and, and, and be led towards Jesus. Is repentance enough? Peter said, repent and be what? Jesus said, believe and be baptized. It's not enough. So at what point, I'm just asking, at what point did Jesus and the early apostles and the early church believe that you said yes to Jesus? It's when you, by faith and repentance, confessed his name and were dunked in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, received the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's when that inward faith and repentance took on the outward ceremony, the outward symbol of water and the cleansing of the word, gives you the proposal, you're gonna say what? Say yes. What is his proposal in the New Testament? That you will be baptized in my name for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll be sins washed away, eternal life. And that's there, it's beautiful. That's why in the New Testament you find they're immediately accepting it. Ethiopian hears about it, he immediately says yes to Jesus. People on the day of Pentecost, when they hear what they must do, repent and be baptized, they immediately say yes to Jesus. Lydia says yes to Jesus. Paul says yes to Jesus. The jailer says yes to Jesus. What about you? I mean, this is, this is the beauty. So don't take this as criticism. Don't take this, oh no, you're condemning me. I'm just saying, if you have that sort of love and commitment to Jesus Christ, won't you say yes to him? Coming back from Nashville this past week, and sitting next to me were two women going to a wedding on the Isle of Palms. One was gonna be the matron of honor, one was in the wedding. <clears throat> one was engaged to be married within a year. The other one had been living with her uh, boyfriend for the last three years, matron of honor. And so we're sitting there and they're talking and they apparently didn't mind if I heard it. So some old guy sitting next to him, you know, so I'm just, all right, I'll listen. <laughs> it's pretty interesting, they're pretty loud and all dramatic and this kind of but it was sad to me too because the matron of honor said I know he loves me I trust him he's good to me he's faithful to me we share everything together but he has no interest in marrying me no interest in a ring no interest in a ceremony it's been three years I don't question his love his commitment 
It's trust, get along great, but I want more. I want more. She wanted a ring. She wanted to be married. To which she says, I'm seriously thinking about when I go back to end it and move on. It's not enough. It's not enough. Now, I thought that was interesting because I was already working on this lesson. I love how God gives me illustrations. Her pain became your illustration, but, and really if I'd known her better, I would have given her some advice on that as well, but it wasn't my place. But I just listened, I thought, you know what? Here is Jesus, who's just given us this invitation, this, this commitment, will you say yes to me? And church traditions and scholars and, and people and opinions have gotten in the way. There were people who believe in him, cannot see how much Jesus wants to put the ring on your finger. I'm just asking you to think about it, pray about it. Don't make this decision in haste. Please make that covenant with Jesus to see what it means. That beautiful relationship, love, trust, commitment, forever. By being dunked in his name to have your sins washed away, to receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life.